0: As you heard earlier, uh, Stephen pointed out in the, in the prayer, uh, we're having Austin Royal this morning preach to us. Um, I just have to say, as a personal observation, Austin, it seems like, you know, just a, really, was it, three years ago? That's all? It, in a good sense, it just seems like he and Anna Caroline, just, you, you all have just been here. You've just been such an integrated part of the, the ministry here. And what they've been doing at Austin P is their Reformed University Fellowship. Um, Head has just been has been wonderful. So, brother, thank you, thank you for preaching the word to us this morning. Good morning. It's good to be with you. Uh, my name is Austin Royal. I'm, I work for RUF, as Dave just said, at Austin P. Um, I'm thankful for y'all's care for us and interest in our ministry, and prayers and support. Uh, we really appreciate it. Um, if you'll turn uh, with me to Luke chapter 11, verses 14 through 23 this morning, um, we're going to talk about that passage. And uh, before we read it, I want you to think about something. The Bible can be uh, summarized in a couple of different ways. One way is it's the story of God rescuing his people. Uh, It's it's this redemptive story from beginning to end uh, of God redeeming and rescuing his people, his creation. Uh, Another way to think about it, Uh, is it's God establishing his heavenly kingdom on earth. God bringing heaven to earth. Uh, That's what the story of the Bible is about. And what that implies is that his kingdom wasn't here for a time. But in fact, another kingdom was here. Uh, And what we see in Luke 11 is the clash of the kingdom that was here with the heavenly kingdom intruding into the world. Um, And with that on our minds, let me read Luke chapter 11, uh, verse 14 to 23. Now, he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger, than he attacks him and overcomes him. He takes away his armor, in which he trusted, and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father. Thank you for this morning to come before you in your presence to worship and to also read and hear your word. And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be true and pleasing in your sight. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, There's a movie that came out in 1995 called The Usual Suspects, and it's this movie where this kind of misfit group of crooks all end up in the same jail cell one night. Uh, and then they get roped into doing a job together. Uh, and it's a good movie. I like it. Um, but the the movie's remembered for one thing, one phrase that the main character says at the very end of the movie. And he says this, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. It's one of those... Phrases that kind of can send chills down your spine. Um, but I've thought about that phrase a lot as I've been looking at this passage, studying Luke 11, um, thinking about it. Because I think, I think it sounds true. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. I think it sounds true because there's a lot of people in the world that wouldn't say they believe in the devil. Uh, there's a lot of people in the world um, who, yeah, would, don't agree with, with what the Bible has to say about Satan and his kingdom. Um, but but there's also a lot of people that do, and even if you don't believe in the devil, you believe in evil. Like, you can diagnose evil when you see it. Uh, you flip on the news, you flip, up, you get your iPhone out, and the the headlines all have alert in them: uh, death, tragedy, human trafficking, uh, rape, uh, shooting. Uh, it is all signs that point to something is wrong in our world. There, there is, like, you don't have to have a big moral compass to diagnose something is wrong. There, there's evil in the world. Um, and the reality is, the way the Bible lays it out is, like, Satan has his kingdom that he built on earth. And we've all tasted it. We've all felt it sting. He's, he's like this gourmet chef who just serves out death chaos and destruction, day after day after day. We've all tasted it. Uh, we've all experienced it. Um, but we, we think of it as something that is out there, that we experience in the big moments, when, when a close friend dies, or when we experienced abuse, uh, or parents got divorced, we're in divorce, something like that. We, we experience things that we say, this is not right. But what about on the day-to-day kind of mundane things? we tend to think it it doesn't touch down there. At least it doesn't touch down in my own heart. And I want you to think about this. This is a quote. It's from your quotes and notes. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says um, in the script tape letters, which is this book he wrote about a senior demon training this lesser young demon, the the tricks of the trade. What is it like to tempt, confuse humans, to get them to turn away from God? Um, And he says this. It's funny how mortals always picture us as putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. What if the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing you that when your life feels normal, uh, when things are going okay, you don't actually need God? You don't need him. What if the greatest trick he ever pulled was convincing you that his power doesn't touch down in your life and therefore you don't really need God. Um, There's a lot of people who can diagnose evil in the world. There are very few people who would point the finger back at themselves and say, yes, I contribute to it as well. Um, But in this story, in Luke 11, it's a story of two kingdoms and Jesus draws a line and says, you're either in one or the other. You, You don't get to be neutral. It's either one or the other. And it's a story about the world and it's a story about our lives right here in Clarksville. Lives that we live on a daily basis. Uh, with that in mind, three points today. The new kingdom, the king and his spirit, and finally gathered to the true king. So first, uh, the new kingdom. The, the story begins with Jesus healing a mute man. But it, it quickly shifts the focus uh, to people's responses to Jesus. And then Jesus responds to them. <clears throat> the text says that, One group marvels at Jesus. They're in awe of him. Um, And then look at verse 15 and 16. It says, But some of them said he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. And then others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. So one group marvels. One group looks at him, questioning what he's doing, and wants to run his name into the mud. They want to align him with Satan. They want to discredit everything he's doing, um, claiming he's aligning himself with the Prince of Demons. And then finally, another group looks at Jesus and says, I need more. Like, you you have to prove more to me before I'll actually believe you, before I'll actually trust you. Um, Think about these three responses. In 2019, in American culture, when you say you believe in Jesus most of the culture is going to say you must have a few loose screws in your head. The, the fact that you believe a Jewish man who lived 2,000 years ago is God and savior of the world, a man that you can't see, you can't talk to, a man that only this outdated book can tell you about, you actually believe in him? But, but think about this for a moment. Put yourself back 2,000 years ago. Every person in this story was looking for a Jewish man to be their savior. They were looking for a man who would come and do signs and wonders they had never seen anyone else do before. They were looking for a man who they could put their hope in, a random Jewish man. And what they've seen in Jesus is this man doing signs and wonders, doing things they've seen no one else do before. Uh, Lame people are walking Blind people are seeing. Mute people begin to talk. Dead people are being raised from the dead. Jesus is doing all these things. He's putting things back together. He's bringing new life. Uh, And the men and women in the crowd were looking for someone just like that. Their hopes were in someone just like that. And what they do is they look at this man. They see him do something amazing. It's some marvel. Someone to smear his name in the mud and cause everyone to forget he ever lived. And some people keep saying, I need more. Give me more. Um, what's going on? Like, why so much unbelief? Why so little care for the power of God on display right in front of them? I, I think that's the work of the kingdom of Satan in the world. When, when religious, devout men and women who are passionate about God, can stare God right in the face, see his beauty, see his power on display, and think, I want nothing to do with this man. I think that's the power of the kingdom of Satan at work in our world and in their lives. Um, What's the greatest trick the devil ever pulled? Was maybe convincing you the way you perceive God? Your feelings toward him are always true. The way you perceive God is always true. What if that's the greatest trick the devil ever pulled? Because these Jewish people, they they were looking for Messiah, they were looking for Christ, but they had expectations of what he was gonna be like. They had expectations for how he was gonna deal with them and their community. They wanted to enthrone a king who would overthrow Rome, who would who would get them out of their oppression and suffering. And Jesus didn't look like that. He was meek and lowly. He was a servant. So their expectations were way off, which is why they couldn't see Jesus in God's face looking directly at them. Um, What expectations do you have on God that he never seems to meet? Do you feel the freedom to question and dismiss him? Maybe sermons, maybe what you read in the Bible, uh, because of things you've hap- that have happened to you, that you blame him for? Um, what, are, what are ways in which you are demanding things from him, saying, I'll trust you, but not until you do this. I'll trust you, but not until you provide this. Um, I, I think in spite of the 2,000 year gap, we're, we're not all that different. We, we can hear these stories of Jesus. We don't get to see him do them, but we hear all these things. We know he's different, and yet the expectations for what we want our God to be like is different. Because this is like, it just shows our hearts are bent away from God, not towards him. They're bent away towards questioning him, uh, bent away towards... Um, demanding things from him that he says he won't necessarily give. Um, I'll tell you a story. I, two weeks ago, I flew to Dallas for ref training, and then I flew back. Um, and I don't really like hanging out in the airport, uh, so I kind of shuffled off the plane uh, to get my bag. Got My bag was one of the first ones off the little turnstile. I, I got it, um, and my car was parked at one of those like shuttle and drive places, Um, And so they were shuttling me, they shuttled me to the airport, I was looking for the shuttle bus um, after I got my bag, and I've done this probably five or six times, so I know where it is. Um, But there's also been some construction at the airport, Uh, you know, they're shifting things around and stuff. And so I, I went to where I thought I should go, and I didn't see the sign that I usually see for the shuttle bus to take me back to the lot. And so I turned around and then started following other signs to other places where it shows, says the shuttles were, and I was with this big group of people walking in the same direction. Um, and you know, I get down to the bottom, there's this big cement wall because they've done all this construction and we just kind of funnel this line to a place where we come out and there's Uber drivers, there's taxis, there's like four different shuttle buses and so I'm like, okay, I'm in the right place. And uh, I sat there for the next 30 minutes waiting for my shuttle bus to come. And it never came. And it, you know what did come? It, shuttle buses from other services came three or four times through. And after that, I finally thought, you know what? They're not going to come pick me up. And so I hustle back to the, um, the main part of the airport. I walk up the stairs. I see this bus that says what I think is supposed to be my bus. I jump on it because um, uh, it was leaving right then. And we go, and we go to the parking lot in, in the airport. And I'm not on the right bus. Um, and so, I, basically, this runaround happened for, it, uh, it took me, I was out of the airport within about 10 minutes, and I didn't leave the airport for about another hour. Um, as you can imagine, it was very frustrating. All the things going through my head were, what is wrong with these people? What is, wrong with this sh- what is wrong with this shuttle bus? Like, why are they messing this up? Why haven't they shown up? I'm just thinking about all the different ways I'm going to argue with them and tell them how they were wrong. And, you know, eventually I realized they had done nothing wrong. I was the one who had done everything wrong. The way I had perceived reality was wrong. I think we do that with God because God, in this passage, says, Jesus says, I am coming, overthrowing the kingdom of Satan. This powerful, evil force in the world And when we experience evil, we we credit it to God. Why do we do that? It doesn't make sense. The overthrow of evil is what Jesus is doing. And for some reason, when life is hard, when we feel suffering and pain, we point to God and say, what's the deal? Um, This passage is saying, Jesus has come to establish his kingdom. He has and is overthrowing the kingdom of Satan. And one of the verses that comes to mind is John 10. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come to bring you life. Why do we have such a hard time believing Jesus has come to bring us life? Um, This leads me to the second point. uh, The king and his spirit. Um, Jesus, in verse 20, doesn't claim to be doing this miracle on his own he says something's come with him. He says, if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, in typical Jesus fashion, he doesn't <clears throat> explicitly say what he means, but this this uh, story is told in the gospel of Matthew and Mark. And if you look over there, it says the spirit of God. The spirit of God has come upon you. And so Jesus is claiming God's spirit, the finger of God, to be the power behind how he is able to do what he's doing. He's claiming the power of God himself. Now, why did Luke use the finger of God to describe this? I I think it's everyone in the crowd who'd heard the finger of God would have immediately connected it to a couple of very important parts of Israel's history. Um, The finger of God shows up in Exodus 8 and Exodus 31, if you know anything about the book of Exodus, it's the book where God is redeeming, buying back Israel out of slavery to Pharaoh, giving them the law, pushing them towards the promised land. And in Exodus 8, the finger of God is attributed to the plagues. The plagues that Jesus is used, our God uses to overthrow Pharaoh and his power. Um, in Exodus 31, the finger of God is attributed to writing the Ten Commandments on stone. And so when you fear the finger of God as a Jewish man or woman, you are thinking about two of the most significant parts of your history, two of the most powerful moments of God showing up saying, I am your God and you are my people. And Jesus is saying that power is back. It's here and I am wielding it. I am bringing it into your community, into your lives, into your day to day. Redeeming people from slavery and writing the law not on a stone, but on their hearts, so that they will love it. Um, and this is, this is kind of what Jesus is saying. Up, up to this point, throughout all of human history, uh, the sin has been playing this symphony of death, uninterrupted, with no intermission, and Satan as the lead composer. Years, ages of sheet music played to this cold, dark tune, uninterrupted. No one's overthrown it. But then Jesus enters the music hall. He, he overthrows the conductor. He strips him of all his power. And he begins to make new music, to write new melodies, uh, music with redeeming notes, uh, music that brings life to people. And he begins to teach it the musicians, so that you'll start to play it. Um, the symphony of the hall begins to look and sound different, but it, all just, it doesn't just all happen at once. It's slow. I mean, learning a new instrument, learning new notes, learning new music, it takes time. Um, but to even complicate things, for some reason, and I don't know why, God doesn't kick the old composer out of the music hall. He, he lets them stick around. He lets them stay. Even though he's stripped of all his power, his influence lives on. He he can hum the old tunes in the back of the music hall so that when you hear it, you think, oh, I need to be playing that. Um, He's allowed to rip instruments out of your hand. He's allowed to turn up the heat so it makes it really uncomfortable in the music hall. He's allowed to do things that we don't understand why, but, but he's still around, his, his influence still lives on, but the power has been stripped away. Jesus is conducting a new music hall with new music, new symphony, and it's beautiful, but it doesn't look like it will when he finally comes back and glorifies himself and fulfills his kingdom on earth. But here's the thing, we, it takes a long time to learn a song and it takes an even longer time to actually forget it. It takes an even longer time to actually, like, yeah, get it out of your mind. Like, So in other words, what are the places, what, what is the music that just comes out of you naturally, uh, and you think it's normal, but it, it has nothing to do with the new conductor, everything to do with the old conductor? Like, it, it is so much easier to express frustration, Annoyance and impatience than to be compassionate and patient. And those are those are two different things. And we've learned one really well. And Jesus is trying to teach us another way. What does it actually look like to love? To compassionately care for the people wow. around you. Um, it, we, we all have these, these old tunes that quickly come to our mind, much quicker than the new tunes that Jesus is trying to implant into our hearts um, to teach you. I I want you to notice um, in in verse 20, it it doesn't just say uh, the finger. It says the finger of God, if if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Like Jesus makes it very clear. It it, it has happened now. He's saying, listen, crowd, the, the thing that you long for, the thing that you hope for, Is presently and currently here now the kingdom has come it's not that it will come it has come Um, the God who brought Israel out of slavery uh, the God who gave them the law he has come back and has established his kingdom now which gives us so much hope for change To, to know that the conductor has been stripped of his power and now a new power is here a power that Jesus willingly gives to those who ask the Holy Spirit uh, to enable them to love, to enable them to care for the others, to enable them um, to live uh, as his followers in the world. Um, but Jesus also draws a line of between the two kingdoms. Uh, and, and that leads to the third point. If uh, Kind of the tension of the text, uh, Jesus ends by saying this, whoever is not with me, is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Um, it, it's an either-or statement. Uh, it's not a both-and statement. It's not one of, like, where we think we can kind of slip through the cracks and, like, kind of not be associated with either one. Um, when it comes to morality, when it comes to the choices you make in your life, you, you aren't neutral, you are aligning yourself with one or the other. There's there's no in between, and that sounds really harsh. And it's it's because it is. It really is. Um, in a world that uh, we want to be good, like we want people to think we're good, ninety nine percent of ninety nine percent of the people in the world hadn't looked this set up. Uh, if you ask them, do you think you're good, they're gonna say yes. They're gonna say yes. Um, but what if, what if the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing you uh, that you were good and could overcome sin on your own? Because we, we like to think that we can control our sin. But it doesn't, it isn't controlling us like the things that we're doing on the side that we like. No, God doesn't really think are good. Like we can stop when we want. And the Bible says a different story. You are being played. Uh, this is another quote. It's in your quotes to know. C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis says, "Excuse me, the senior devil says to the younger devil, if you can once get him in the spirit, or if you can once get him to the point of thinking that religion is all very well up to a point." you can feel quite happy about his soul. A moderated religion is as good for us as no religion at all, and it's more amusing. Um, That is a fascinating quote to me. Um, A moderated religion is someone who puts himself around religious things. Uh, I'd say a moderated religion is the person in the story who marvels, who thinks, man, that's cool, and he leaves and he never thinks about it again until the next time he happens to show up. I think that's what moderated religion is. Something that we can think, oh, that's cool, that's interesting, and it has zero impact on our lives. No bearing on our souls. Um, I'm from Georgia, and so a sermon about the devil uh, would not be complete without uh, talking about the Charlie Daniels band. Um, but we, we know this song. We know it. It's like the devil's in a bind. He's like trying to find the soul to steal, and kind of going off the contrary of what he usually does. He decides he's going to make a deal with this guy, and he challenges him to this fiddle playing contest. Um, and to his surprise, Johnny blows him away with how good he is. Defeats him. He gets this golden fiddle. Um, it's a funny song. We love. Like yeah, we laugh. It's like. In the world of two kingdoms, you cannot defeat the devil, Satan, the power of evil on your own. It's not possible. You, you cannot overcome uh, sin and evil, uh, temptation um, on your own. And the thing is, though, the, the Bible says God is a divine warrior, a divine king who has come to save you, who has come to meet you where you are weak, even though you don't think you're weak, meet you where you are weak, and bring strength, bring his spirit, bring the power to change you, to mold you into his image. That is what the Holy Spirit is called to do. It, it's, he is molding you into the image of Christ. That's what all those J.R. Packer quotes are about. The Holy Spirit's work, his purpose is to mold you into them as Christ. It's not for you to like harness his power um, and use it in some fun ways. It's like, no, the Holy Spirit is always pointing you to Jesus, which means sometimes we suffer and it hurts and it causes us to run to Jesus. Sometimes we have victory and it's beautiful and it causes us to run to Jesus. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in both places. Um, We can't overcome the devil on our own. But God has offered a way. Um, he sent Jesus into the world. A conquering king to not just be your king, but to be your savior. In your weakness, in your sin, to draw you out of. He invites you to himself. Um, what does this look like? I'll, I'll close with this. Uh, um, this the sirens uh, in Greek mythology were these, well, some say they were beautiful and some say they were like devils. Um, but they they sounded beautiful. They lured they lure, lure sailors in um, to the island that they lived on with their song. And so the, the story that's best known is the one of Odysseus, uh, where Odysseus has heard about the sirens, he's going home, and he wants to hear it, but he knows if he hears it, he's going to steer the ship towards him and he's going to die. And so what does he do? He he gets his uh, sailors to tie him up on the mast <clears throat> and... He puts earwax uh, in their ears, so they can't hear. So he can hear, but he's tied up. Um, And they go by, and he's hearing this beautiful music that he knows is going to lead him to death, and he's screaming to his sailors, like, untie me, untie me, untie me. Um, And they don't because they can't hear. And so he travels by, and he he hears this beautiful music that's supposed to kill him, but he gets through. Um, And I think sometimes... We think about Christianity sort of in that way of, like, we're either going to, like, put our head down, not pay attention to anything around us. Like, we're going to take the suffering and pain in the world and, like, no joy, no thankfulness. Like, we're just going to get to the end. We're going to get to heaven. We're like the sailors who have earwax in their ears. We're just going to put our head down. Um, But then some of us, we're like Odysseus, where we want to enjoy the pleasures of the world that we know will lead us to death. But we, we hold on as best we can to God. And so we, we try to have our feet in both places. And, and God says that doesn't work. It's not going to work. Um, there's, there's another story, though, uh, that's not as well known, but it's Orpheus. Orpheus drives through our ride, uh, sails by um, the Sirens Island, and They start to play their seductive music, and he gets out an instrument and begins to play beautiful music that overcomes them, that drowns out the noise, drowns out what we perceive as beautiful. He plays what's more beautiful. And I think that's what it means to live by the Holy Spirit, to play the song of Jesus in your head over and over again so that it is more beautiful than all the things you see around you. And I think it's actually a way that frees us to live in the world because it frees us to call sin what it is and yet to still live with thanksgiving, with joy. We can call pain and suffering what it is. It's terrible. It's evil. It's ugly. But we also have the promise of a better kingdom that is here now, the promise of a Holy Spirit, sustaining us to the end, molding us into the image of Jesus. Um, so, yeah, I hope we will learn to play beautiful music. We will learn the tunes of the New Conductor. We will learn the songs of the Holy Spirit. And we will sing them to ourselves, to our children, to our friends, learning ways to actually see how God is actually at work in the world and in your own heart. and. It, Yeah, you know who does this better than anybody—the psalmist. The psalmist has figured it out, calling the world what it is, and yet putting his hope in God always. He always circles back around to, "You are good, and my hope is in you." Um, May we put our hope in the Lord as well. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, that you are a strong God you have overcome one who is stronger than us. I pray that we would know that, uh, that we need you. We need you in our dire moments, and we need you in the normal mundane moments. Uh, may you transform our hearts. Give us your Holy Spirit, Lord, that we might love you, that we might live for you, and we'll fall after you, Lord. Give us your Holy Spirit that we might be able to see you more clearly in the world see the ways you're at work in the world um, that we might sing beautiful music knowing you reign supreme and your kingdom is here now I pray that you would give us eyes to see it in our hearts and the hearts around us knowing you are very active in a people in the church as we do that Lord I pray that you gather us together uh, that we would be a people who do not run away from you a relationship, Uh, With you or with each other, we would run towards you, seek unity. Pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Um, I'd like to call the elders and those helping uh, with the Lord's Supper up.